Hello and welcome to my podcast. I'm Jesse Neeland. And uh, today I wanted to address a question that comes up a lot among my clients. And uh, basically the question is, but what about men? Now this is generally uh, women who date, sleep with, partner with men who ask this question. They tend to be um, the body image avatar of the self-objectifier, meaning that their body image issues are focused on uh, trying to get their needs met in the space of sex, intimacy, partnership, love, etc. Um, if you don't know about my body image avatar work, you can go find the free videos uh, that I've made on YouTube there. There's, there's content around that that you can find. I have a whole guide if you want to buy it. Um, but also, in this episode, I want to talk about moral disgust and moral attractiveness, which are two topics I've already covered. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, I recommend going back and listening to them because uh, this is sort of building on that a little bit. Anyway, the question is, what about men? And what this means basically is people are asking me like, okay, cool, I can unlearn who I'm attracted to. I can unlearn the anti-fat bias and fat phobia. I can unlearn beauty ideals and, uh, you know, unrealistic standards for uh, women particularly, I can unlearn all that, but what about men? Are they unlearning that? And this is a really important question. Now, obviously, not everybody sleeps with and partners with men, so if you don't, this could still apply, right? It could be, well, what about everybody else? What about the, the people that I'm dating and sleeping with who could be any gender, and also if they haven't done the work to unlearn this stuff, they may still be really, really mired in the idea that, like, Thin is good, fat is bad, uh, being, you know, uh, conventionally attractive is important. And, you know, they can, be, they can be mired in this stuff at any gender. There just happens to be a big push toward my women clients who date, partner with, and sleep with men worrying. Because, because I would say that at this point, most women have heard of the body positivity movement, right? They've heard of uh, pushing back against beauty ideals. They've heard of all these concepts, even if they're not deep in it, even if this isn't like a big pursuit of theirs, they've certainly heard, Hey, it is fucked up that we hold women to these standards of beauty. You know, that we've got like the Kardashians who won't release any photo that hasn't been so heavily photoshopped and edited that it's a whole scandal when somebody takes a picture of them and puts it up on the internet and you can see like, you know, a dimple in their thighs or whatever. It is bullshit. And we kind of all know that. But men are not typically having these conversations, in part because it doesn't affect them directly, or at least they, they might not think it affects them directly, uh, in part because it is coded as feminine stuff, right? It's like coded as women's problems, like all of feminism and all of these um, systems of oppression, how this works is it becomes coded as the problem of the people who are oppressed in these ways, it becomes coded as the problem of the people who are suffering. So in this case, unrealistic beauty ideals and the sexism that fuels them never really touches men the same way, even though men are absolutely held to a certain beauty ideal and they're absolutely body shamed for, uh, for their weight and they're absolutely getting totally screwed over by the patriarchy and the anti-fat bias and all of these things. They absolutely are, but they don't, they don't get touched by the conversation the same way. They're not given room 
generally speaking, or permission to feel insecure. <laughs> like a man is supposed to just be confident all the time, right? That's the standard of masculinity. So he can't therefore have a conversation in which he's feeling insecure about his body or, or worrying if he stacks up against other men without having that sort of called into question. So generally speaking, these conversations happen, you know, sort of on the DL between trusted friends or with their female partners. So the conversation just doesn't spread the same way. It is there. I talk to men all the time about this. It, it exists and it's important. It just isn't mainstream. Unlike with women where I think the conversation around, hey, these beauty ideals are hurting us is pretty mainstream at this point. So because of all of this, the question of what about men basically means if you are conditioned to believe what you believe, you grow up in the world that you grow up in, you learn that, you know, uh, conventional beauty ideals are important and that an attractive person looks a very particular way and that that person has higher status and more moral worth and they're just better overall and they're more worthy of respect and belonging and connection and love and intimacy and all these things. They learned that too. So you can go on your own journey, right? You can do your body neutrality work. You can do the healing and the unlearning and the dismantling of all of these systems. But what about your partner? And I say that meaning what about your actual partner? And what about your future partner? Because if you don't have a partner right now, the, the thought of dating and finding a partner can be really, really daunting. And this is what comes up with my single clients a lot is they say, I can't imagine ever finding a male partner who has done this work. Therefore, if I want to partner with a man, I am basically screwed because I can do all the liberation work in the freaking world and I'm still going to have to partner with somebody who objectifies me and sees me as, um, you know, my value being attached to my worth, my attractiveness being based on beauty ideals and conventional norms, uh, my weight being really important in their eyes because being thin is part of the beauty standard for women. So it really freaks them out when they're like, okay, I've done a lot of work to dismantle this and I actually feel okay in my body, but maybe they gained some weight as they went through the, you know, recovery process of not engaging in disordered eating patterns or having a, a disordered relationship with exercise or not picking themselves apart or not, uh, you know, wearing uncomfortable undergarments and makeup and, right, like putting less effort into their appearance as they've healed their relationship with their appearance. That's a very common thing that happens. And so then to say, okay, well, now I want to go out into the world and meet a partner is super scary because we have been fed the belief that men specifically are super visual and that you have to fit a certain ideal for them to notice you, to value you, to choose you, to love you, and to want to give you the intimacy and sex and love and partnership that you want to choose you, you know. So in all of that, there is this assumption that no matter how much work you do on yourself and your own body image, you're always going to be put into a position if you partner with men of having to face it again because they are not doing that work. Now we'll say there's, there's a lot of truth to this. There is a lot of truth to the fact that we are all conditioned one way. Men particularly are conditioned not only with the conventional beauty ideals and um, anti-fat bias that I have talked about when I, when I discuss moral attractiveness, which is essentially the idea that we find attractive, what we learn, what we're conditioned to, to believe is morally good, 
sort of righteous, virtuous, high status. Um, so they learn just what we all learn, which is like, you know, the the kind of woman who is the best, most worthy, most valuable kind of woman looks a very particular way. They learned that. But on top of that, they also learned to objectify women, which means the entire conversation around how men are conditioned to see relationships and sex is informed by a, an objectifying lens. And this is a lot of, there's a lot of sexism in this. There is a lot of uh, just messed up systems of oppression interwoven in this conversation um, that we could get into and go way into the weeds about. But the important thing is that this is below their level of consciousness most of the time. Most men, and I will say most good men, right? Because I'm not talking about like truly bad people. I am talking about good men who are conditioned a certain way and have no idea that they were conditioned a certain way, have probably never given it much of a thought. That these are men who, generally speaking, learned that their job in the dating space or in the hookup or sex space is to get a woman to say yes to him. It is to go after someone who might say yes because she may be in a vulnerable position, meaning maybe she's like had a couple drinks um, or maybe is, you know, feeling down after a breakup or whatever, right? This is the sort of uh, hookup wisdom for men. It's like you essentially learn as a man that your job is to get sex from, to get, to get someone to say yes to you using all of these context clues and tricks and tips around how to get uh, an attractive woman or really any woman to say yes to you regarding sex. And it's seen as their job. It's not even seen as creepy. Like, I don't think most of the men that I know would, would necessarily use this language, but it is in there. You know, they, they wouldn't say to me, ah, oh, yes, my job is to get women to sleep with me. It's more like they, you know, if you think about even romance, it's the wooing, right? It's the wooing is about convincing a woman to find you suitable as a partner. I mean, that's an old-fashioned concept. That's not hookup culture. That's like the guy writing poems and convincing the young damsel to, uh, you know, to, to love him, to say yes to him, to marry him. We see that same thing. It's just in hookup culture now. So it's like, you know, he's not writing love poems, but he is laying it on thick. You know, he's like trying to impress her. He's trying to uh, make her feel good. There's a lot of compliments involved. There's a lot of like, sometimes lying involved you know you see the trope in tv shows and movies all the time of the guy who's like oh i'm an airplane pilot you know or i'm a doctor just to get in a woman's pants right it's like all about impressing the woman enough that she says yes to you so they learn that trickery and manipulation and lying is all sort of not necessarily required and for some people they would just never do that but it is like not it's not crazy to them, right? They learn that that's not so far outside of the realm of what is appropriate or acceptable. Um, they might decide not to do it, but there is no outrage. There is no like, oh my God, I can't believe you said you were a doctor. That's, you know, that's horrible. <laughs> like you lied to that woman. Um, that is not the culture that we live in. We live in a culture where it's kind of just like, yeah, you can lie, you cannot lie. But the idea that men lie to sleep with women is not, does not create outrage, generally speaking. It is very normalized. So men have learned to objectify women in this way, to see them as something to conquer, essentially, something, uh, something to win, 
So there is this automatic objectification informed in how they see women. So if there's also like the, you know, the whole idea, think about middle school boys, this is like the worst um, and most obvious place where this kind of pattern shows up. The idea that it is the getting of women that gives them their man card, you know, that their masculinity is based on how much sex they can get or how far they can get with a girl or how, um, you know, hot their partner can be. We think of the trophy wife is like a status symbol for somebody who's very, very rich, very successful. He's got like a, you know, a bright red um, vintage convertible and a, a fancy watch and a hot young wife with fake boobs and blonde hair. So we, we see women used this way without ever naming it as objectification, but it is objectification. And it, men are taught very particularly that, that this is just the paradigm that they're grown up in is generally the idea that women are the gatekeepers for sex and they are the pursuers of sex. So they have to do the active work to get the woman to say yes. Her job is to say yes or no, to keep things from happening or, you know, or, or to give in, give in and let it happen. Now, granted, this is changing, right? Like there's lots of women in younger culture or not younger cultures, younger generations now, um, who would say that this doesn't seem to apply to them at all. And that, that can be great. It can also be uh, a whole other host of problematic things, but but this is the the stew that we were all raised in, still, for the most part. So, men learn to objectify us. We learn to objectify ourselves. We learn to present ourselves as attractive so that they notice us. We learn to uh, get in shape so that we're fit and thin so that they notice us. We learn to wear push-up bras and spank so that they notice us. Like this is the whole thing. It's all for the male gaze. Even if you individually don't think about the male gaze when you get dressed, it is all baked into the culture that we learn growing up, which is essentially that we have to present ourselves as attractive and men get to pursue us based on what they see and that they will pursue those of us who are the most high status, meaning the most conventionally attractive, and that everyone else is not going to get chosen. <laughs> And also that it's a very normalized for us to be chosen and valued in this way in our relationship with men particularly, which is to say it is normalized for objectification of women to be the basis of, of partnership. Now, I work with women all the time who have been like married for decades and they'll say, my husband married me because I was good looking. Like I was hot. He loved my body. He loved how hot I was. And now I'm getting older or I've gained weight or post-pregnancy, my body's not the same or whatever. And he's just not that into me anymore. And it is devastating. Now, sometimes those men would argue if they were ever on the call, they'd be like, what? I think you're gorgeous. Are you crazy? I'm so into you. But, but other times that's not true. Other times it is. There is this cooling effect because he never necessarily chose her for who she was. He never really was in love with who she was. He was in love with what her attractiveness meant for him, how it made him look and feel important, the sort of status of having, you know, that kind of partner and the, the arousal uh, experience of being like, yeah, I get to sleep with this really conventionally attractive woman. So sometimes that is true. And like I said, other times the, the, the husbands would, would be so mad to hear that because they don't, they wouldn't agree at all. Um, and a lot of that stuff gets baked into our minds as women 
often because we know that it is a trope if it is not necessarily playing out in your partnership you still know that is a thing that happens right the like trope of the guy who gets a younger wife you know he has a midlife crisis he leaves his wife of 30 years and he, he gets a, a woman who's 30 years younger than him this is a trope we know about so it kind of gives men a bad name in this way and like I said I'm not necessarily talking about bad men I'm just talking about normal good men for the most part who just have not looked at these systems and structures inside themselves they have not done a lot of self-inquiry around hmm who am I attracted to and why and where does that come from and what does that mean about me and what where is my choice in partnership coming from and what does objectification in that space mean like they haven't been having these conversations and that's the point so the question of what about men really comes down to how do you move through the world of partnering and sleeping with men while recognizing that most of them have not done this work most of them have these old paradigms in their head and that once you do the work to set yourself free from them in in any capacity how do you then engage in a space where that paradigm is being held up for you where men are still very likely going to choose you based on your appearance they're going to hold that moral attraction around conventional beauty norms meaning they're going to um, see conventionally hot women as more hot no matter what their bodies tell them no matter what they actually would like if they did the dismantling work like we've talked about you, who you're attracted to can change pretty dramatically when you've really explored and examined this stuff so no matter what is underneath an unexamined man is likely to choose or or feel attracted towards conventionally attractive women that's likely to be the thing, right? They'll, they'll see thinner women as more attractive. They'll see um, the sort of high femme uh, look as more attractive. Now, this is not true for everyone, but I just want to put, put out there that it is absolutely understandable that if you haven't done the work to unpack this stuff, there is a higher chance that that's going to be in there as normal, right? That that's going to be in their heads as like, yeah, that's just how things are. Like, these are who are the most attractive women. That's, that's what turns me on the most. Um... I also work with and talk to men all the time who are like, honestly, screw that. Like the Kardashians are not attractive. The, uh, you know, the, the high femme look, the eyelashes and the makeup and the nails is not attractive. I like just a real woman with a real body. I like curves. I like belly rolls. I like no makeup. I like, you know, a woman who just feels herself. Like I hear this from men all the time that they're upset that there is this idea that they're into conventionally attractive women because they're not. I tell this to my clients all the time and they're like, okay, who are these men? Where do I find them? But it's just worth saying that this is not standard. This is not an absolute that just because everyone was born in this culture and conditioned this way does not mean everybody likes the same thing. It just means that there is a higher chance if you haven't examined this stuff that it will be in there somewhere. So the men who I have worked with to dismantle this stuff display the same exact journey that the women and the other gendered people that I work with display, which is when you unpack and dismantle your relationship to the anti-fat bias, you stop seeing thinness as more attractive or as, as attractive as it once was. And you start seeing that there is more of a feeling of attraction towards people in different size bodies. And this goes with everything else as well. If you experienced a feeling of disgust towards uh, folks in big bodies you unpack and dismantle and do the liberation work required to um, 
really to overcome the anti-fat bias inside of yourself as much as possible. You unpeel those layers. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time. Um, but if you do that, then on the other side, you're not going to feel disgust towards people in big bodies. And in fact, you might feel attraction towards people in big bodies. So it, it changes the whole thing. And this is true for men as much as it's true for everybody else. Now, I will say there is some interesting uh, research that backs the idea that, that women have a more fluid um, sexual journey, basically. So they, they are more likely, this is just statistics, right? It's not, this isn't going to be true for everybody, but um, women are more likely to have a fluid sexual palette throughout their life, meaning they might be into... Uh, men for 30 years and then discover that they're into women for the next 30 that that can flip in that way and it's less likely for men to have these drastic swings from one thing to another um, in part because there is a sort of sexual imprinting that happens uh, to men in childhood I think I can't remember now but it's it's something like between the ages of eight and ten that basically what they what they experience in those ages sort of locks in a little bit of what they're going to find attractive later on now, this is, again, super general. We're just speaking statistically here, but I've heard it compared to cement. So it's like uh, for men, what they are attracted to, what turns them on is likely to sort of solidify like cement drying. And therefore, it just kind of stays pretty much within a range throughout their lives. Whereas women, it's like the cement never dries. It stays wet. You can leave new imprints for an entire lifetime. Um, now, of course, this is not prescriptive. This is just an interesting fact because I have worked with men who have gone through drastic swings in what they were attracted to throughout a lifetime. I have also worked with men who are like, nope, <laughs> I have dismantled everything and I still like the same exact thing. Like maybe there's a fetish that got locked in and it is not going anywhere now. And, and women too. I've had women who are like, nope, I've had the same fantasy for 40 years. That is what I like. So this is just interesting uh, statistical fact for us to kind of hold because when it looks like or when we're looking at a woman unpacking what she's attracted to because of things like systems of oppression, fat phobia, racism, ableism, uh, homophobia, all these things, um, she's statistically got a better chance of really expanding who she finds herself attracted to than a man. But it still happens. It's just we, we might think of it as maybe on a slightly smaller spectrum. That's the way that I generally explain it. It could be anything, but generally speaking, it's going to be a smaller spectrum. So this is fascinating to watch when I work with men. Fascinating. Because you, we, I should say, we often have the impression, I, as a, as a teenager especially, had the impression that men are sort of a monolith, that they all like the same thing. Um, and as I've gotten the absolute pleasure of talking to men uh, the way that I do now, I, I discover like there is no monolith and most of them hate these standards. Most of them that I talk to are like, this is garbage and I, I don't want to be a part of it or I have never been a part of it. I have never felt like this suited me. So in seeing this get dismantled among my activist male friends, what I've noticed is the, the idea that men like a certain thing as a monolith, it could not be further from the truth. But culturally, men feel that they have to look like they like the same thing, right? Men feel pressure to be a part of a monolith because that is where status for men comes from. 
So there's a lot of lying, or I would, I would say not maybe lying, but there's a lot of like what they present being different than how they feel. There's a lot of vulnerability going on below the surface for the men that I talk to that really reveals that our general perspective on men and what they like and want and are attracted to, they're just, they're completely unrelated. And I think a lot of women would be really surprised by it. But when I, when I work with or talk to men who have done this work through anti-racism, activism, anti-ableism, um, you know, feminism, intersectional liberation work, basically, I see the same exact thing. These are men who will tell me, I used to think that thinness was really important, but since I've learned all of these things, I've unpacked all of this stuff, I, I am no longer attracted to very thin women. I used to think it was, it was just hot, and now it feels really problematic to me. My first, my first thought is like concern. Is she, is she okay? How is her self-worth? How is her body image? How is her, um, how is her mental health? You know, I worry. Or I look at very thin women now, and I just think like, oh, that kind of woman wouldn't be a good match for me because she's still buying into certain beauty norms and ideals and um, body ideals that just would be unhealthy for me because I'm going through my relationship with my body at this point and I don't want to have to uphold the quote-unquote perfect body for her. So now there's a shift in who he might be attracted to because he's doing his own work and now what thinness signals is something totally different than it used to signal and now what beauty ideals and like you know that sort of very particular high femme look signals is totally different than it once did. Now he's attracted to something different. Now he's finding himself really drawn to a different kind of woman in a different kind of body. This is very, very common. And this is common for my, my women folk as well. For people of all genders, this was exactly my experience. Uh, as I did this liberation work, I found myself attracted to different people. But it's important to note that this is true of men because we have this idea that like, Men are visual. Men like what they like. We're never going to change that. They're just cave people who are horny and like they're always going to objectify women. That's just the way they, that things are. But it's so not true. The issue is they have to have been willing to engage in this space in order to really know this stuff, in order to really do this work. They have to be able to say, I had systems of oppression and biases inside me and I've been working to dismantle them. Now, where are these men? For the most part, they're only men I know who are in activist spaces or sometimes in spiritual or, or therapy spaces as well. Um, but this is, not, this is not the conversation we're having about men as a norm. And so the, the question of where do I find a man who's going to understand this stuff? Where do I find a man who's done the work to dismantle his, you know, moral disgust around um, large-bodied women or women who don't fit this norm or different gender expressions like where do I find these people it is I just want to normalize and validate like it is hard and it is scary and it is a super shitty situation to say most men are not going to be a good fit for me because most men have not done this work now they might still find you attractive right like that has almost nothing to do with anything. They might still find you attractive, but they are unlikely to be able to really connect with you on a non-objectifying uh, level if they haven't done this work. Because again, you will essentially have to step into a role of teaching them how to not objectify you. And that is exhausting and honestly boring. And most of us don't really want to do that. 
So if you are looking to partner with men, it is a tough situation right now. And personally, um, a few years ago, I basically decided that I was done partnering with men. Uh, it was not something that I felt I would uh, get anything out of again. And I ended up partnering, uh, my, my partner at the moment uh, was a surprise to me because he was not like everybody else that I had dated and partnered with. But even so, it is still difficult. It is still difficult at times because this stuff is in there for me as much as it is for him, right? My idea of like what men are like might have nothing to do with him, but it's still in my head. I still have to unpack that stuff constantly in this partnership. Um, and this is one of the reasons why, because it is a tough situation right now because men are not taught to and encouraged to do this exploration work. And when they do, they're fighting an uphill battle because they have an entire lifetime of ideas around masculinity and women and bodies and attraction and sex and all this stuff, just like everybody else does. But they have their own particular set of those things to fight. So all of that is to say it is a tough situation if you're single right now and thinking about partnering with men and wondering who the hell is going to be attracted to you or who the hell is going to be willing to partner with you in a really human-to-human -human way instead of a self-objectifying way or a, a him-objectifying you way, I should say. It is a tough situation and I feel for you. I absolutely understand. And they're out there. They are out there. People who will be attracted to you are out there way more often than you think because that part actually has very little to do with uh, the reality of most men's experience. That yes, they might find conventionally attractive women attractive. They also find other people attractive because that's just that, that stuff is not necessarily going to go anywhere. People like what they like. They might not own up to what they like among their buddies, but they like what they like. Um, I have fat women who say that they, men want to sleep with them all the time. This is not uh, an issue that they have. And so the idea that men only like thin women is absolute nonsense. It's just that maybe the man knows, hey, this is not um, a socially high status thing to do. So I keep that on the DL from my friends. So there, there's some messed up stuff around this about what this conditioning actually looks like. But what it doesn't look like is men only being attracted to conventional beauty norms and body ideals. They like what they like, just like everybody else. Now, that part we can kind of dismantle pretty quickly. But when we look at how does it look for them to be in partnership with you where they don't objectify you, that gets a little trickier. Because there is this assumption that you will be objectified if you partner with a man. That that is just how it goes. He will be into how you look. He'll be into your body. He will need you to keep it tight for a lifetime. He'll need you to keep it hot for him to stay interested. That is objectification. I have so much more to say on this, on how arousal works, how cultivating intimacy and sex and pleasure and connection work. Um, but I just want to acknowledge here that it is a tough situation because most men have not been invited to do this work and to look internally and say, oh my gosh, what I have inside of me is uh, a paradigm in which I objectify my partner. Now, what I will say is that a lot of women who partner with men and have been partnered with men as they've done this liberation work have reported that their partners go with them, meaning their partners now see how much happier and healthier and better off they are in a bigger body because they did the recovery work to stop you know, weight suppressing, to stop trying to fit some ideal that made them super insecure and unhappy and unhealthy. 
And their partners will say, oh my gosh, I love this. Like, you're, you know, you and your bigger body is just fantastic to me. I love that you're embracing yourself and feel confident and are better off. And I now understand because you've explained it to me over time, I've seen it play out, the issues and problems with, you know, the, the fat, anti-fat bias, et cetera. So a lot of male partners will report getting it just by watching and having a partner go through it. Particularly those who I would say were maybe already interested and engaged in this space a little bit and, and had the opportunity to, to be pushed that direction by a partner. So it can happen. A lot of men that I, uh, I should say, a lot of my clients' male partners will basically come to a point where they say, I didn't know before. I didn't know how unhealthy it was. You know, for, for I didn't know how obsessive my uh, most women have to be in order to get this thin, or I didn't know how insecure it made them or whatever. They are just good people invested in their partner being happy and they want that to look however it looks and they are still into it and they want to have sex and it's all like way less scary than, than you might imagine setting out. But it is really scary setting out. It is because the perception we have is totally different from that. And there are douchebags, I will say. There are, there are guys who are not going on that journey, right? There are guys who, when you gain weight and get healthy and happy and like are doing awesome, are like going to body shame you and be douchebags about it and say, oh, I, you know, I, I'm not attracted to you anymore because you gained weight. And I would say, well, I have a lot to say about that, but I would say that that situation is far, far more um, uh, visible, right? We hear that situation. We see that situation. Everybody has a horror story of somebody they know having gone through something like that. So that is what we hold as normal, but it's not normal. It is out there. And those are bad guys who you shouldn't be partnering with. Um, in my opinion, I should say, but, but it is not the only, it is not the only thing. It is not the only option. And so, yeah, what do we do about men? The question that is a great question. I would very simply say, you find a partner who at least will go with you on the journey, who is interested and open-minded and good and interested in connection. And then you can challenge them to look at their own stuff. You know, you can challenge them to, uh, to really understand your journey, to really understand what it costs you to try to look a certain way and, and, and all the systems of oppression that you have dismantled inside yourself or are dismantling as we speak. And challenge them to do the same and lead by example. You can do that. There are lots of good men who will go on that journey with you. You can also wait and find a man who's already done this work. Because it is, like I said, in my opinion, super boring and frustrating to teach a man to be uh, better in this way. So you can also just wait to find a man who has already done a lot of this work. And those tend to be men in activist spaces um, or who, you know, grew up in whatever capacity they were introduced to these concepts and ideas. Um, a lot of men who have done an enormous amount of therapy or are, you know, in the therapeutic world themselves or spirituality sometimes or, you know, just some random computer programmer who just happens to be interested in this kind of stuff and has done the work to dismantle it can work too, right? It doesn't have to be anything. It's just men who have done this work so that you can join them in a relationship that is never started on objectification, that objectification is always challenged and not a part of the equation, so that you are two people coming together because you respect and honor each other as equals, truly, and you cultivate 
the kind of sex and arousal and play and pleasure and intimacy and love and partnership that you want. And you go from there. And finding those men might be difficult. I work with people who are like, I'm in a small town. Where are these men? They don't live here. And I say, yeah, that's, that's valid. They might not. I don't know. They might not. And that is tough. But they do exist. And, and this, this is how I would love to reach men too. Like, how do we get the men in the small towns to have these conversations? That's a big question I'm interested in too. How do we reach these men? to challenge themselves, to do this work so that they can show up in partnership better, but also just so they can show up in the world better and be the kind of person that they probably want to be. How do we reach these men? So that's a question I'm just going to leave it on today. I hope that this is um, useful to sort of explore if this is a question that has come up for you, whether you're partnered or single, that it is valid. There is some truth to it, or at least it's based on bits of truth. But our perception generally as a culture, I would say, is not the truth. And the work can be done. How do we get them to do the work? That's a big question mark. How do we reach them? I don't know. You tell me if you have any ideas because this is something I'm really passionate about doing. I would love to reach more men to help them do this work for themselves and their partners and the world. Uh, and that is it. And thank you for listening. And I'll catch you next time.